Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. We are coming at you amidst the ongoing Third World War. We have all sorts of fronts to cover today, from the ongoing ground invasion by Israel into Gaza. They have cut northern Gaza off. They've reached the beach, so Gaza City is being surrounded. We're going to cover that, with as well as Nasrallah's Hezbollah speech recently that, you know, that we're going to discuss all about that. We're going to talk about Russia, huge moves in Evdivka, Africa fronts in Ethiopia, Eritrea, big moves in South America, and of course, Eurasia itself all over, just things going on. So we're going to be all over the place today, breaking news on multiple fronts. Dimitri, how are you doing? Great, Conrad. I think it's it's finally happened. Netanyahu has finally taken that leap of faith and you know the support of his country as well as the United States and the majority of the Western world. He's finally done it. His uh, Israeli forces have entered into Gaza proper. And in fact, they've entered very strongly, unlike last week where it was essentially probing operations. We have the Gaza Strip almost entirely cut in half, actually, by Israeli Merkava tanks, which roughly have uh, have engaged with Palestinian defense forces, which, which you know, very organizations but one of which is of course Hamas and there is footage from the ground naturally being cut off from the internet there's not much Palestinian footage from their perspective and Israeli losses aren't being covered I think as accurately as I think the world would hope because we'd like to see exactly what's happening on the ground there given that you know what what we're receiving actually from the Gaza Strip in terms of uh, civilian casualties are still quite explicit we're reaching that 10,000 civilians dead mark from the Gazan Palestinians, which is horrific. These numbers are, they've already eclipsed in terms of scale, any civilian deaths that have occurred in the Ukrainian-Russian conflict over the last year and a half. And in fact, we're looking at something completely unprecedented. And that, and of course, this is only getting worse given the fact that Netanyahu has gone completely unchecked. And in fact, the Israeli war machine is moving. And at this point, very palpably into Palestinian, into direct Palestinian territory. Naturally, when Gaza City began, uh, begins to, you know, experience the when the tanks actually head towards the proper Gaza center of the city in order to take out the Hamas leadership there, we're going to probably witness, and we'll, I mean, we'll most likely cover it, but we may witness some of the most horrific uh, fighting yet. But at this point, yes, Israeli tanks have entered into the Gaza Strip. There's hundreds of tanks, probably thousands of soldiers at the same time, and they are definitely pushing a certain strategy of cutting the strip in half in order to essentially divide and conquer. I think that's their that's the approach of the IDF. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing, we've seen some crazy footage. I'm sure everyone watching this has already seen the footage of that Hamas, you know, Al-Qassam brigade soldier just storming towards a Merkava tank. He places what I think is one of the RPG grenades, like one of the rocket-propelled grenade rounds on top of the tank and then runs back. Then they pick up another RPG and then it hits the tank and, it, you know, it's like a doubly large explosion. And it was, you know, the very crazy footage. It, kind of shocking to me how that guy didn't get immediately seen by anyone looking out from the other squad of tanks around them. But as of right now, the line that has kind of cut Gaza in half, it's right above Alzara, north of Alzara, south of Wash. You know, Gaza City itself, you know, the capital by far largest metropolitan area within the, within the Strip is now besieged. The goal seems to be, like Dimitri said, to take out, you know, some of these high rises, some of supposedly the areas under these hospitals they claim are where these Hamas leadership is and whatnot. At the same time, we know multiple Hamas leaders are in places like Qatar and Lebanon and other places where I don't know exactly how you can fully claim that Hamas is defeated without sending Mossad into these other Muslim countries and like taking them out, which I can't imagine those countries would allow. So again, the actual mission goal, which they have stated is the complete, complete destruction of Hamas and removal of their influence within any Palestinian lands. I don't know exactly how that is achievable. 
that's that's been pointed out by a number of other sources. And I think that leads us to kind of the big hot news that we're just coming off of that many are a little bit disappointed by, which is the Hassan Nasrallah speech. You know, Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, the relevant, the most relevant, I guess, immediate player who have yet to make as big of a move. Of course, we see the Houthis and the Islamic resistance in Iraq doing a lot, doing what they can. You know, the Islamic resistance in Iraq directly attacking U.S. bases with drones. Uh, missiles, also all all sorts of things that the the Shia groups have united across that country, and then the Houthis are just launching long range missiles directly at Israel. It's pretty crazy. They've just full on declared war. And while many people, the anticipation was that I made the prediction that Nasrallah wouldn't full on declare war, ground invasion against Israel, but would escalate and use rhetoric to where it would kind of seem that way. And that's exactly what happened. Of course, they the claim being that we didn't declare war nasrallah claimed that we've been in the war since october 8th you know we started new strikes and the kind of they're claiming the limited operations they've done have been to relieve pressure from hamas and the gaza strip to make the israelis have to direct forces to the north but the speech was really long it was over an hour and of course i i, I scrubbed through the translation that was being dubbed live when it was going on by al jazeera but in general somewhat underwhelming obviously the fact that there hadn't been you know, big strikes or, you know, big movements announced in the hours leading up to the speech, I knew that it wasn't going to be some kind of all-out total war speech because you can't just say that on a speech and then do it because obviously all of the, all of your enemies are watching. You have to kind of time these things differently. Like, it's not like Putin came out on the TV as February 24th was was, was ongoing or like in the hours before they moved into Ukraine. So, that's, that wasn't how exactly that was going to work, but it seems that he left some doors open and some doors closed. He basically said that it's a Palestinian war, this is a holy war that, that we're a part of. They're, they're saying that if it gets to the point where Hamas could be eliminated, it's, he basically says that's not possible, but if it is, we could intervene. But at the same time, they're kind of expressing confidence in Hamas, implying that somehow they could win and we don't need to intervene. Of course, again, they're really praising the other factions of the axis of resistance in Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. But but in general, the message was somewhat ambiguous, and in general, people were thinking that this is a result of Iranian behind-the-scenes pressure to not escalate. So, Dimitri, I'm wondering your thoughts on, on Nasrallah's speech. Yeah, I think we're seeing caution, not just from the uh, you know Hezbollah officials. I think the only side not actually showing any caution and bravely entering into combat is probably Hamas. And on this, and even Netanyahu, remember, it took three and a half weeks, four weeks to prepare the um, ground Israeli invasion. Even though we pro- were probably aware that Mossad and Netanyahu's office himself were probably aware of Hamas's initial strikes on the seventh of October. I think in the conspiracy circles, it's quite clear that it was kind of telegraphed, perhaps in secret. Although Nasrallah's speech in particular here, he does give a very uh, balanced opinion. He's saying, look, the entire the entire world, he calls on the international community, which again is a bit of an overused term. He does say the entire Muslim world needs to unite around Hamas and their struggle in Palestine. Notice he doesn't, he actually very favorably speaks about Hamas, whereas in Western media and even in uh, some I guess you would say and not some traditionals, maybe conservative media circles, we see people kind of pushing away from Hamas, Hamas seeing them as perhaps a little bit too Islamist, a little bit too radical, and perhaps everybody's advocating for Palestinians, the innocent Palestinians dying. But Nasrallah here, very uh, in a Chad-like fashion, speaks out in favor of the actual Islamic organization itself, saying that they are the freedom fighters, they are the main force amongst all the others in the Gaza Strip in Palestine fighting against the Zionist entity, which he again names very clearly. Again, 
again, uh, very interesting. He does mention the bombing of churches and he does kind of try to bring on Christian sympathies. That has something to do again with Lebanon. You know, Lebanon did experience one of the worst civil wars in the Middle East in the 1980s. So you have to consider that they've had Christian Islamic clashes. Lebanon is not one of those countries. And I think we can grant that Hezbollah is not one of the organizations that's seeking to agitate Christian Islamic relations. So on one hand, Hezbollah may seem somewhat, you know, not very much to the liking and to the uh, to the taste of perhaps some Christians in conservative circles online and in politics, but Hezbollah is, if anything, tolerant of Christianity. I think we can say that very comfortably, simply because of the, the fact that they are in Lebanon. Lebanon has experienced that really, like a lot of civil strife, I would say, over the last 40 years. But Nasrallah's speech, I mean, what can I say? The the fact that he admitted that those folks slain in Palestine, these Palestinian martyrs, both civilians and Hamas fighters, are martyrs and their martyrdom will be remembered, I think is basically a, a large Islamic testament to the fact that the Palestinian liberation will uh, will commence it's just it will take the carrying of, of of the carrying of a cross i guess in like you know no pun intended here because you know muslims are against the cross but they will be carrying on their struggles towards complete liberation and he did name the operation again we see that name alexa flood he's naming it he's very much speaking of it as an operation on the ground i think uh generally speaking nasrallah's stance has been uh very much status quo but you know very very much in line with what hamas has been publishing all this time so nothing new really nothing new revealed and i do want to say the analogies right conrad would say putin's speech in february 2022 nasrallah does seem to be following this putinist model where you give a political speech but you do have to make historical analogies which he does make very often that's why the speech is over an hour long it's him speaking about martyrs him speaking about the historical wars between palestinians arabs and jews over the last 70 80 years and Putin does did the same during his Ukraine uh, special military operation speeches, and when he, um, of course, the Donetsk Lugansk People's Republics were joined to Russia. These appeals to history, I think, are becoming more and more popular in these historical speeches. And I think, if anything, you can call this like a a Putinist type speech, a monologue of sorts, which uh, may be a new type of a uh, new type of appeal for some of these powerful conservative leaders, such as Nasrallah himself. But yeah, maybe slightly disappointed only because the casualty rate is so high in Palestine, right? And so we'd expect perhaps Hezbollah to act in some sort of decisive way, or even perhaps present to Israel an ultimatum, like stop the bloodshed or else we will do X or Y. But in fact, no ultimatum was given. It's just a, a direct condemnation and in many ways, a very much needed virtue signaling moment for the Hezbollah faction of Lebanon. So I think that's kind of my take on it. I, I'm not. I'm very much on the fence here, but generally speaking, I think most people are relieved that World War III didn't just launch last night prior to us recording, because you know that that was the fear that the aircraft carriers will begin sending uh, bombers to bomb South Lebanon and Beirut and things like that, and then naturally Syria would get involved and so forth. Yeah, those were probably the most interesting comments that Nasrallah made throughout the speech was he explicitly referenced the carrier groups and whatnot. He said, all possibilities on our Lebanese front are open and all options are on the table. We can go to them at any time. If Israel bombs our civilians, we will bomb their civilians. How they will act will determine how we will act. America sent us messages that they will bomb Iran if we continue. How dare you threaten our resistance? Your ships in the Mediterranean don't scare us. We have made preparations for the American ships, and we ask America to remember the defeats in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. On the horizon, we are all fighting a battle of steadfastness. Our battle has not reached the stage of victory by knockout, and we still need time. But we are winning. Gaza will be victorious, and Palestine will be, be victorious. Soon we will meet to declare victory in Gaza. And that was basically the, the end of the speech, where he basically kind of covers all the bases that needed to be covered to not 
what you could say blackpilled the actual Muslims listening, at least probably the Hezbollah people gathered in, you know, town squares in southern Lebanon or the people sheltered underground in Gaza or in the West Bank listening to this speech, you know, hopefully hoping for, you know, frankly, just hoping for tangible military aid and salvation because they're living under, you know, genocidal bombardment. And so he covered those bases, but at the same time, you know, people were disappointed and, you know, people were hoping for that Iran had given a go-ahead on something. But again, there's always the possibility that something is in the works, but we know how long this operation probably took on the Hamas end of things. Hezbollah doesn't seem that they've been working on something similar that they could maybe just expedite. So... It seems we're going to have to wait for more, uh, I don't know, unless the Jews just go crazy with some kind of escalation that just truly demands a political response from, and that's, that's kind of the theme that's going on here, whether it's Erdogan in Turkey or even, you know, Khomeini in Iran or those in Jordan, especially those more inclined towards Israel already, the pressure is just on from their, from their Muslim population, which which again, we, we were just on the Dissident Mama podcast, and it shows you the, the civilizational attitude that Muslims, especially in Muslim countries that are in, again, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, these are kind of the three heads of the possible, you know, remnant caliphate that exists in the Muslim world. And these people are sick and tired of the Zionist entity occupying key land and just, you know, disrupting the Al-Aqsa Mosque and whatnot. And again, I'm not saying that all of the Muslim grievances are our grievances, but if Christians had that same civilizational attitude, maybe we wouldn't be in as many of the predicaments that we're in right now. But yeah, World War III, so far still still only in these few fronts, you know, America is still only a proxy actor yet to officially enter the war, so we're still watching closely. But yeah, I mean, the situation in Lebanon, it does seem that certain actors, you know, are very much acting to hold Nasrallah and Hezbollah back as well. So we can't discount that influence entirely. Yeah, Lebanon is a very divided country. I think it remains so. And, and you know, nothing paints them more vividly than Nasrallah's speech. And in contrast, uh, Samir Jajia, the president of the largest Christian Lebanese nationalist party, so a very prominent Lebanese politician, and actually a Maronite Catholic Christian himself. And he's also the leader of the Lebanese Forces Party, which is a kind of the party itself is very pro-Western, anti-Hezbollah orientated and somewhat anti-Palestinian as well, blaming the 2006 conflict and the fact that Lebanon was involved in that on Hezbollah, um, the aggression of Hezbollah against Israel. So he's saying, look, Lebanon and Palestine, they're different nations. They do need to stay separated. We don't need to be involved in that particular Palestinian-Israeli conflict in the South. So somewhat of a protectionist Christian figure, but again, pro-Western. So protectionism doesn't really mean what it means in this particular context. He did, he did clearly state that, look, uh, Hezbollah needs to withdraw its forces from the south of Lebanon. And he also says that all of the Hezbollah weapons need to be handed over to the Lebanese armed forces. So officially, and he made the statement this week. So in fact, this is not some historical statement that's anti-Hezbollah. He's basically said that, look, Hezbollah needs to stop its agitation of the Israeli military at the north end of the country. And in fact, surrender its military capabilities, which Hezbollah has. Hezbollah has anti-air missiles. Hezbollah has drones. Um, it's, it's pretty much an equipped, uh, if you can say, if Wagner had a mil had a military, you know, the size of Hezbollah. I think you'd definitely. It's pro pro pretty equivalent. I think Hezbollah in and of itself is probably the largest non-state funded military in the world, one of the largest. So in fact, he's actually asking for it to be disbanded again. Hezbollah Nasrallah is not going to listen to to Samir, but they will in fact be you know they'll 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 be known that it'll be known that Hezbollah does have these opponents within within Lebanon itself who are pro-Israeli, which uh, unfortunately the Catholic Maronite community seem to be. And it's similar to, you know, 
the we spoke about the Indian Pakistani you know the Indian support for Israel. It's the the disliking of certain Sunni Muslim groups, for example, in, in India's you know agitation with Pakistan and their particular conflicts there forces the Indians, or at least the majority of Indians, doesn't force them, but they're attracted towards the idea of an Israeli struggle against Islam. When in fact, it's not really a struggle against Islam on the Israeli front. I mean, yes, the Al-Aqsa Mosque wasn't really um, wasn't really in danger of anything. The King of Jordan is still the caretaker. It's more of an anti-Palestinian genocidal war, which we're seeing. And this Maronite president from Lebanon does necessarily comment on that notice he's a little bit he's quite cunning in his approach he's saying look hezbollah don't trigger lebanon uh, into a war with israel in fact we should surrender all of your weapons and let's stop this islamist uh encroachment upon the israelis so again very unfortunate that that's that split has occurred there i think um I think for most Lebanese people, even Christians, they are quite they're quite demoralized by that, given that Israeli forces have struck Christian targets in, in the Gaza Strip, including a Christian community center, which was also completely destroyed, similar to the hall next to the St. Porphyrius Church. This community center was naturally for various community denominations within Gaza, so not just Orthodox Christians, but I believe Palestinian Catholics, etc. But it was completely destroyed by an Israeli bomb. So I think Christians in the Middle East should be aware that Israel is not just targeting Islamic targets here. They're also and Palestinian targets. It's Christians who are also the victims. Yeah, there's. Uh, I'm not saying that Archbishop Alexios or Patriarch Theophilos would be supporting Hezbollah or anything like that, but there's a difference between calling for a ceasefire and then calling for the disarming of the enemies of the Israeli-American regime and then calling for surrender basically to their terms. That's very different than calling for a ceasefire. So I don't think that this Christian leader is exactly following the exact interest of the Christians in the actual region. But speaking of the people in the region, of course, one of the biggest pieces of news that broke recently, WikiLeaks, you know, they posted a verified document from the Israeli Ministry of Intelligence. It was from October 13th. and It basically suggests forced displacement of Gaza civilians to Egypt. And the document states that it would yield positive and long-term strategic results for the Israeli state. And WikiLeaks says the advisory document envisages a three-stage process, including the establishment of tent cities in Sinai and opening of humanitarian corridors, followed by construction of cities in northern Sinai from which there would be no return to Gaza. A week after the Hamas attack, Israel's Ministry of Intelligence issued a secret 10-page document outlining the expulsion of the Palestinian population of Gaza and northern Sinai in Egypt. And there's like four points here. One, instruct Palestinian civilians to vacate North Gaza ahead of land operations. Two, subsequent land operations from north to south Gaza. Three, routes across Rafah to be left clear. Four, establish tent cities in northern Sinai and construct cities to resettle Palestinians in Egypt. The document has been verified by an official from the Ministry of Intelligence. According to the Hebrew website Mechamit, which originally published the document, Mechamit noted the documents from the Ministry of Intelligence are advisory and not binding on the executive. But again, this is clear as day. It's been carried out exactly as described in the document. You know, we're here on November, early November, and this is from mid-October, and exactly what was stated is going as planned. And this is the kind of thing, this is not acceptable to Egypt, Jordan, any of these surrounding countries. And if it really starts to go forward, Again, while we were underwhelmed with Nasrallah's speech, that could maybe be one of those red lines that they're talking about. It definitely will lead to escalations from the Houthis and the Iraqi Islamic resistance. But again, ball still in Hezbollah's court. But Dimitri, this makes a lot of sense considering Netanyahu's been referring to the Palestinians as Amalek explicitly. You know what I mean? 
That's right. So he's painting the Palestinians as the Amalekites from the Old Testament, who Joshua fought against. You know, the inheritor of Moses, who the Israelites, the the, the Amalekites were actually positioned geographically around that Gaza. Not Gaza was fil- a Philistine strip of land, interestingly enough. But he doesn't refer to them as Philistines because Philistines and Palestinians sound too much, too much alike. So he can't make that reference because whoa, Palestinians. Some Palestinians actually claim historically that they are the ancient Philistines that you read about in the Old Testament, which would give them a certain claim to the land as as a form of like a tribe of ancient Can- Canaanites, right? But he doesn't make that. He compares them to Amalekites, and Amalekites geographically were more in the, I guess you can say, southeastern region, the more uh, Sinai Negev desert area, which again, it makes no real sense, but the Amalekites were very, very much the enemies of Israel and Judea in those early centuries in the Old Testament when Joshua fought against them. King Saul, again, went to fight against them, and uh, Holy Prophet King David did as well. In fact, I, I guess you can also make a reference to the fact that Netanyahu just tries to make these tries to make these analogies to the Old Testament, but they never seem to work because again, Israeli understanding of of scripture is very different. You know, the rabbinical, and I would, I'm not even saying Netanyahu's a rabbinical reader of scripture anyway, but this particular rabbinical tal- Talmudic reading is just a little bit off. If anything, the uh, you know the conquests of Joshua were very much sanctioned by God, and in fact, Netanyahu naturally claims that his conquests are again sanctioned by the will of the people, which is far, far from godly, especially if you consider, if you read the Old Testament, there's certain passages which condemn alphabet community type behavior, and 25% of Tel Aviv is are members of the alphabet community. So if we speak about following God's laws and testament, um, Israel doesn't do that. So these references to Amalekites and, you know, calling the Israelites these Canaan, Canaanite uh, barbarians is just completely wrong and inappropriate. And Netanyahu should not be making those claims. Again, very, very much dehumanizing in this way. It's similar to Ukrainians calling the Russians orcs, right? Because the fact that Russia's in the east and Mordor was in the east as well, this geographical reference is very powerful, I think, especially in the eyes of just the regular public in the media who kind of consume this uncritically. It may appear like, wow, completely true, and maybe Netanyahu has a point. God forbid I even read what evangelical Christians have to say about Netanyahu's reference. I think it's completely inappropriate. But yeah, just to, I just want to mention quickly, this Palestinian like plan to apartheid, genocide them essentially. It, essentially, it's a, it's a cultural, geographical genocide that they're going to try to push the Palestinians in, into the Sinai Peninsula, essentially similar to what they claim the Russians did with the Cherkassian genocide, which in many cases could be called the Cherkassians exodus of the 1880s of the you know the reign of Alexander II in Russia when the Muslims of the Caucasus Mountains simply didn't want to live in Russia in the Russian Empire anymore and the Russian Empire and the Turkish Ottoman Empire collaborated into migrating close to a million Cherkassians as well as other small Muslim nationalities from that area near Chechnya on the Caucasus Mountains they were migrated willingly to the Ottoman Empire and settled over there so We've had these settlements happen before, but the Russians are called, of course, Russians are called genocidal historically, as well as what they're doing in modern Ukraine during the SMO. But the Israeli is doing the same. No, it's called the humanitarian exit for the Palestinians. In fact, you know, you have these leftist uh, politicians in the US even claiming these Palestinians should be brought to the United States. But that's, I think, completely crazy. Naturally, I think that's the plan. And in fact, I may go even further and hypothetically looking forward weeks ahead, we may see this division of Gaza militarily, right? The tanks, the Merkava tank line driving through the middle of Gaza, essentially them setting up these military, I guess, fortifications down the center. We will see what they do to the north of Gaza will directly impact how the south of Gaza will react. So once the Palestinians in the south of Gaza see this bombardment of Gaza City, the atrocities, once the the, dare I say, kill count of the innocent Palestinians reaches way over 10,000, the southern Gazan people may just run for the Egyptian border because they'll be like, well, where next? 
So essentially, you cut Gaza in half. One half is genocided and, of course, purged. And the other half runs away, leaves their ancestral lands, and essentially empties them by its own volition because they're simply scared and terrorized by the capacity of the Israeli military. So I think it's quite devilish, this uh, approach by Netanyahu and the Israeli um, political elite here. Well, and let's be frank, this document was obviously seen by the major enemies of Israel at this point, the Houthis, the Iraqi resistance and everything. And I mean, the Houthis, they, they full on declared war at this point. I mean, the member of the Houthi Politburo, Mohammed Bukaiti, he said, bombing the Zionist entity made us feel warm and happy inside. And we were overjoyed when we heard the U.S. aircraft carriers were coming. We asked Saudi Arabia, despite being our enemy, to let us through their borders to fight in Palestine. But they refused, even though we are very excited to fight. And of course... Saudi Arabia has been waged, I mean, up until very recently, you know, for 2015 to 2019, Saudi Arabia was the number one recipient of U.S. foreign military equipment. Uh, Mike Pompeo had put the Houthis on a terrorist list, which included basically all 24 million people in Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen as some kind of terrorist because of their affiliation with the local governments. Because much like Hezbollah, the Houthis are a totalizing force that con- their, their entire government, you know, that controls a whole large section of Yemen with a large portion of the population. And of course, uh, Joe Biden actually took them off that list and everything. So the Houthis have had a little bit of room to breathe thanks to the big Brandon administration. And so they've they've used that room to get some pretty long-range Iranian weapons and just hawk them at Israel. And look, we've seen the videos of the interceptions over Eidlot and these other places in southern Israel. There's multiple. And eventually some of those are going to start to touch down because I have a feeling the Iron Dome is not as strong and focused as it is around Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and the northern border, and now the immediate areas around Gaza. That, that southern area, there's between Eilat and then the Gaza Strip, there's a lot of empty space. So some of these missiles may start finding their way through, even though now the U.S. is in the region at the Red Sea, you know, to shoot them down. But the Yemenis aren't just the ones escalating. The Again, the Iranian proxies in Iraq and Syria, they're basically now sending cells from west of the Euphrates and to the east of the region and targeting the the U.S. base is there, and so that's that's not like the crux of the attack. But again, every day they're launching now multiple attacks on multiple bases at once. So they're they're spread all across the region. And again, it is still surprising how many U.S. cells are in some of these areas. But at the same time, we're now seeing you know rumors of ISIS returning. So you know these, let's just say you know they're working. You know they're they're making things happen, and they're they're going to create more problems for Russian, Iranian, Syrian groups in the region, anybody that may actually be operating with some kind of integrity towards the Palestinian cause or towards any anti-terrorism cause in the region. We know that while we applaud Trump for not getting us into any more wars for Israel, he did kill Qasem Soleimani, and that was a major blow to the anti-ISIS, anti-Wahhabist terrorists in the region. So we're all disappointed in that. But as far as the actual expulsion goes, we know Egypt and Jordan are not okay with that. Uh, Before we, I briefly talk about uh, France and Germany and situations, and then we talk about this Wagner situation. Dimitri, what is the, what will happen if this happens? Egypt says these are red lines for for them, but Egypt has no interest in going to war with Israel. Like, what does that mean? I think the only capacity in which Egypt would actually accept mass Palestinian immigration is if the the U.S. of course, so your taxpayer dollars, Conrad, are you know if Anthony Blinken and and Uncle Joe if they agree to actually subsidize this massive move of immigrants and in fact look they've they've supported the migrant caravans moving up to the you know 
the, the migrant crisis on the American border is bad, but they may even support the migrant crisis here in Egypt as well. And money does speak. And so the Egyptian government, it's, it is anti-Muslim Brotherhood. It's not pro-Hamas in any capacity. In fact, it's almost anti-Hamas. It's anti-Erdogan as well. And you, you may have to consider that in order for them to actually receive support, you do have to mention that. It, I think it's worth mentioning the fact that in order to receive American support, they will need to take some refugees. I'm not sure how many. Of course, now at this point, they're only willing to send aid over the border. But you know, at one point, I think the opinions of Egy Egyptians will be very much bound on what the United States asks them to do. I think Egypt is one of those actors who is somewhat dependent, given the fact that they've only recently had a few internal revolutions and it's not, the country is not the most stable. And especially their citizens, Egyptian citizens themselves are, you know, sort of pious Sunni Muslims. They're quite, they're not really thinking about the greater geopolitical outline around the Suez Canal. All they're seeing is their own Islamic brothers in the north and Palestine actually being bombarded and killed en masse. And they probably want them to run away into safety as well. And if that means them coming to Egypt even for a time, settling somewhere in refugee camps, similar to how the Syrians settled in Turkey, right? I mean, it may be a similar situation where they may be settled in the Sinai Peninsula in these massive United Nations type refugee camps. And while they're doing that, um, again, this may be all part of the plan, right? Egypt, Egypt coordinating with the US and US coordinating with Israel. Israel will be mowing down, destroying, bulldozing their homes in Gaza. So these Palestinians will never return home. And of course, Israeli settled settlements, which were strategically already placed close around Gaza, these kibbutz, well, kibbutz will be moved a lot closer to Gaza. And naturally, this is how this progression of cultural and geographic, you can say, uh, ethnic genocide will continue. Again, uh, this is the strategy that has been used before, and I think it, it will continue onwards again, naturally. One particular point I, I did want to mention was that this week it has been solidified that Saudi Arabia, you know, we spoke about Saudi Arabia shooting these Houthi missiles down the ones headed for Israel, but Saudi Arabia has, and the UAE actually, hand in hand, have solidified their support for Israel in this conflict. They've already made several public statements that yes, uh, Israel is the state. They are they they are willing to, of course, support a ceasefire, but their support for Netanyahu's government is, I think, solidified in that you know we see we do see a split. We see Qatar and against the UAE and Saudi Arabia. So there is a split amongst these uh, frontline Muslim, very heavy Muslim countries of the Hejaz and the Arabian Peninsula. So I'm just wondering if, if this can escalate in any capacity in the future. Could there be some sort of Islamic civil war? Could there be um, an Islamic uh, scenario where you know the, the Muslim Sunni population simply has enough of the leadership at home on the peninsula itself and kind of rises up? Again, these hypotheticals. But at this point, the Red Sea is an incredibly hot zone. And I'm sure in depth we'll speak about it later in the episode exactly what other places adjacent to the Red Sea will will find um will find more conflicts in but uh, Israeli corsairs and Israeli ships have entered into the Red Sea as well so now they're assisting the USS Kearney and some other uh, Saudi Arabian Patriot missile systems and shooting down the Houthi missiles flying over flying from Yemen to Israel so uh, Israelis definitely have a defensive particular defensive um, strategy here in order to keep you know to assist I think the, the big shield to have the Iron Dome which definitely will be challenged in the coming weeks and months looking forward the whole situation as far as you talk about Egypt being in a precarious position. I mean, we're going to talk about Ethiopia later. I mean, Egypt's about to be in a major water crisis because Ethiopia is damming, you know, the Nile River. And it, I mean, people need to remember the whole Egypt-Israel situation that if Israel had its way, they would already control the entire Sinai Peninsula. So this <laughs> this whole thing is all just, it's all dishonest and it's all like done like they're all they're just pretend they're they're just playing up the atrocity propaganda because 
they can't have it being everyone knowing the actual plan, which is that we want to genocide these people as far away as possible. Like, they're not even happy about sending them to the Sinai Peninsula. They want that. But, you know, thankfully, Egypt controls it, and the people can go there and then at least not be persecuted there. But, again, these governments, as been made before, they don't love these Palestinians either. So this idea, no one wants to spend their, the rest of their life in a tent city. So, you know, that's it's all just a very disappointing reality. But in the midst of all of this, the West is just really focusing on the issues. France, you know, the Senate, proposing important legislation to ban all criticism of Zionism, just make it illegal, which I applaud them for their bravery in that regard. I think it's an important move, you know, in the midst of all the death and destruction, just any criticism of Zionism, you know, right to jail. That's 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 reasonable. That's, that's, that's sensible, secular, center-left centrism. You know, this is Macron. This is the EU. And if you're against it, you're frankly a political extremist and should be investigated by some kind of bureau. But this comes at the same time where the German government is apparently threatening mass deportations to anybody that will not swear allegiance to Israel. Again, nothing about being loyal to Germany, nothing about integrating into society, nothing about not committing crime when you, you know, come to a first world country. But if you don't like Israel and you don't really like the Jewish people and you don't you know, do your mandatory visit to the Holocaust Museum, then it's time to go back, Ahmed. And I think that's, uh, I'm sorry, it doesn't matter even, like, first of all, that's not genuine, and there's there should never be any kind of strategic alliance with these center-left, center-right Zioshuls under the pretext that they're going to mass deport, you know, the third world hordes that they have brought in over the past decades. That's, don't fall for that, please. <laughs> I beg anybody here in the West to not fall for that. But just just the fact that they're really trying to, to up this rhetoric because they see that the fact that there is any kind of faction at all of the right wing that isn't supporting Israel at all is there's so much of the left wing is gone. And then there's these, you know, nationalist right wing people that are agitating against it as well. It's just not a sustainable position with the entirety of the Muslim world, you know, the multipolarizing world with Russia and China, obviously siding with the Palestinians. And then anybody with a brain that's not getting literally paid by some kind of Zionist operation or is Jewish themselves in the West seems to be wise to the issues. It's just the large Christian Zionist evangelical cohort that maintains frame and keeps us to the point where, you know, we send multiple carrier groups to enforce uh, the reality on the ground of a genocide that Hezbollah and Iran can't respond to because they're afraid, unfortunately. And that's that's just a tough reality. But, you know, I guess the best thing we could hope for is for Hezbollah actually being able to defend the Palestinians would they would need to be able to defend against Israeli air superiority. And there are rumors that something like that was in the works. That's right. There was, CNN actually uh, published a quick story where they claimed Hezbollah was receiving Russian anti-air, so surface-to-air missiles which target uh, fighter planes and bomber planes of Israelis. And these systems from uh, actually of Russian product production, they're called Pansit S1. Pansit stands for carapace or cuirass. And these essentially, just to visualize it here for the uh, audience, these are essentially eight-wheeler massive trucks with, with essentially the back end opening up, and it's essentially just a massive missile launcher which shoots these missiles into the air, try and of course they're seeking so once they lock onto an aircraft they manage they, they can manage to take it out and hezbollah of course receiving these from allegedly syrian wagner sources so wagner returning again to the forefront i think very interesting naturally russia can't supply hamas hamas being locked in gaza completely uh, sort of 
you know, com completely segregated from the rest of the Muslim and even I would say the global South world. So Russia has no capacity to to assist Hamas like on the ground, which is why Putin stated that we are helping the Palestinians, but we're helping them by fighting U.S. influence in Ukraine because. Putin said that, well, U.S. is behind the Israeli war against Palestinians and the U.S. is behind, well, this is Putin's, of course, opinion, but he's saying the U.S. is behind Ukraine, the U.S. is behind Israel, and we're fighting this battle for the Palestinians in Ukraine, which is a very interesting opinion. He's not entirely wrong, but again, returning back to the Panzer S1 stories, again, this would, as Conrad said, provide anti-air capacity for the Hezbollah troops. This is really good considering Israel's, one of its only advantages over these uh, smaller Islamic militant uh, factions, as well as some of these Muslim countries, is its air superiority, which in fact, as we'll see in the later Russian-Ukraine conflict, anti-air missiles are the, the cream of the crop of modern combat. These things are actually really effective, and the, the, the fact that Wagner allegedly provided them and shipped them over from Syria to Lebanon it just adds to the whole thematic side of it because look wagner originally were called isis hunters that was their nickname and as isis is appearing so is wagner of course it's back you know under new leadership and in fact it's assisting it's the first time we've heard about russian assistance in this particular conflict and i mean if anything it's uh it's somewhat it's somewhat positive i think you know lebanon and the hezbollah do need to stand up for their rights and especially the rights of palestinians in some capacity and this does even the battle even out the playing field i think for for both sides you know for israelis as well as the their arab opponents so i think uh kudos to wagner if they really have conducted conducted themselves in this capacity as the cnn story purports but nevertheless i think definitely the situation will develop further as nasrallah's speech kind of uh, I guess solidifies itself and as people receive it and whatever the next plan is after this historic speech that he provided, I think we'll see where the how the situation develops. And naturally, you know, kind of moving into the Russian-Ukraine conflict, I think air superiority, the fighting has been very fierce. I think we've received a ton of statistics over the last month and official Russian statistics are staggering. In fact, even the Ukrainian side has admitted that yes, they've experienced some really uh, some really bad losses on the aircraft side. So their fighter crafts they've lost in the last month, according to Russian sources, the Ukrainians are amounting to 40, 40 uh, combat aircraft lost in the last month. So over 30 days. And this is insane, considering the Ukrainian Air Force only had, I believe, at the beginning of the SMO, close to 250 aircraft aircraft forces of any capacity. And they haven't received any F-16 fighter planes yet. And three helicopters were also taken now. So 43 uh, Ukrainian aircraft was was shot down over the last month, and uh, that's mostly due to not the Panzer S1, but the Russians are using a different system, much more effective. It's called the S300 anti anti air missile launcher system, and its range is staggering. It's something like, from what I read, Conrad, it's something like 300, 400 kilometer range, like absolutely insane, similar to the. I mean, it's and the radar systems used by the Russians are very effective as well. So not only are Russians managing to take out these Ukrainian planes, and I think that's key, like because these these Ukrainian planes not just targeting military targets. These are the planes that are shooting the Storm Shadow missiles as well. Of course, launching these Storm Shadow missiles at civilian targets, including the Crimean Bridge, so the Kerch Bridge. So again, the conflict in Ukraine, Russia stirs on, and the technologies used by both sides are very much uh, you know, pushed to the limit, I think. The situation in Ukraine, as far as the air superiority goes, is getting more apparent. I mean, we're seeing Russia able to strike every region of Ukraine at will, whether it's from air to ground, obviously, with their air superiority or ground to ground, -to -ground missiles they have surrounding all of these areas. Ukraine is, whether it's their mercenary training spots, their ammo depots, their manufacturing facilities that are retreading these tanks, they're all getting lit up all across the region. And this is all amidst the backdrop of huge pushes in Avdivka. It's, it's you know, really big attritional warfare, some of the biggest moves 
and grouping since the beginning of the operation, frankly, you know, that we're seeing. And it's about 60% of the Russian forces in the Avdivka region. And it does seem that this is probably going to get decided right before probably a brief stoppage due to the winter. So we may see this resolved within the next few weeks. But again, it's really getting overshadowed by the Palestinian stuff, which may be to Putin's advantage. He may be appreciating that to maybe get his hands a little bit dirty in this region to get this foothold before this all goes down. But again, the Ukrainians are still pushing in Kherson and these other places. But like Dmitry said, uh, Storm Shadow and Neptune missiles have been launched like en masse at Crimea. That seems to be where they're focusing their Western hardware on. They launched, I think, what was it? It was seven Storm Shadows and four Neptunes at different parts of Crimea, one of those places being Sebastopol, and all of them were shot down with these S-300 systems and, you know, scrambled jets were able to completely remove, you know, the threats. So none of these made touchdowns and there were no injuries or damages to infrastructure. So it seems that the Crimean Peninsula is safer than, frankly, it's ever been. And the Ukrainians haven't, the Ukrainians have not been able to cope with that because they seem to view those strikes and symbolic strikes at this point as more valuable than whatever, I don't know, whatever actual military targets they may or may not be hitting along the front lines if they were to use these weapons. So interesting strategies, of course, but uh, I think it's um, it, it's just an interesting situation across the whole across the whole front line because we are all waiting for that Russian big move, and we don't we just don't exactly know what political reality Russia is maybe waiting for to actually do that. But speaking of, I guess, political realities in Russia, there was a Dagestani, um, there was a situation in Dagestan, in the MMA capital of Russia, you know, these, these lands of these, these feisty mountain Muslims. And I guess they decided it was time to do an old-fashioned pogrom. And uh, there was a little situation there at that airport. Dimitri, do you want to tell the people what happened? Yeah, so just a few days ago, at the end of October, I believe it was right on the uh, right on the eve of Halloween. But you know, these people weren't dressed as uh, zombies, skeletons, and ghouls. They were um, Dagestani, very um, sort of very energetic Dagestani young men. So Muslims in the region of Dagestan. Dagestan's right next to Chechnya on the coast of the Caspian Sea in the, in the city of Mahachkala. Uh, the air, the an airport was uh, an airport landed allegedly flying in from Israel and the so an aircraft landed for, allegedly flying in from Israel and the aircraft had at least I think it was ten to fifteen Israelis aboard Israeli citizens who were flying from Israel escaping as we mentioned to to Dagestan back home to Russia probably dual nationals and suddenly you have these Dagestanis storming storming the airstrip storming the airport itself starting a pogrom and a riot within the airport itself you know surprisingly because airports usually we expect airports to have really high security but it's just these groups of young muslim young muslim men these caucasian looking fellows and most of them built looking like bodybuilders just basically trashing the entire place running out onto the airstrip surrounding the plane you have fellows looking for essentially looking for jews within the aircraft engine itself like peeking in like looking for israelis and in the end i'm not even sure what conclusion they came to were there any Israelis on the plane uh, and I mean this is almost like a, a reference of sorts to something but the, the plane landed and the Russian authorities cracked down on it hard look they were not allowing any sort of uh, degeneracy of this particular type a sort of civil uh, you know <laughs> a civil pogrom of sorts uh, again the new, as the news says no Jews were harmed in the making of this footage right and in fact no Jews were harmed and, you know, surprisingly, the story can continue. I want to hear your opinion, as <laughs> Conrad, on this. But I think in my eyes, it's just... And the, and the Russian... Most Russian news sources actually covered this. They said, look, this particular incident at the Mahachkala airport, it was a Western provocation. At least 80 arrests have been made. You know, Western sources, funny enough, have called it anti-Semitic rioting. When, in fact, I think the reality is it's... If these young people were self-motivated, and I think they're motivated by their... 
um, by their sort of Islamic solidarity with the Palestinians and the Sunni Muslims getting hurt against the Israelis, you know, in, in the war over there happening happening in Gaza, I think what's important is that they um, they were very much uh, not acting in out of anti-Semitic, anti say, um, passions. They were anti-Zionist, I think that's what needs to be said, because Dagestan itself has a very, I don't want to say flourishing, but it does have a very long-standing Jewish community. In fact, many synagogues, Jewish centers of sorts, which have been standing and continue to stand to this day. So the fact that a plane with Israeli suddenly lands and and everyone in the West is calling it anti-Semitic. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. So it's quite a bizarre story. And in fact, I guess eventually Conrad will will decide whether or not, I mean, the Russian media will inform us whether or not this this particular provocation was a Western operation or if uh, just the Dagestani MMA, MMA fighters and bodybuilders got a little bit out of hand and got a little bit too passionate here. Well, I think, again, I, when it was first happening, I thought it wasn't going to get too big. And then I see them, you know, everywhere across the entire airport, and it became a whole thing. And the international community is using it to be like, see, the Russians, it's just a backwards, anti-Semitic, authoritarian hellhole. I think Dan Crenshaw said, I've never heard of Dagestan before, but it looks like a terrible place. And it's like, bro, weren't you in, like, multiple tours in the Middle East, <laughs> throughout like the, the 90s and 2000s, how the hell do you not know what Dagestan is? You're a congressman. But in general, the situation, of course, was latched onto by Israelis and everything to be like, see, the third world savages in, in that already third world savage country of Russia are just looking for Jews. And then, again, there weren't, it wasn't just that there were no Israelis. There may have been a few. There were no Jews on the plane. I think there was one guy that, that they grabbed him and he had an Uzbek passport, but he couldn't speak Uzbek. So they're like, oh, we found one. We found an Uzbeki Jew. And he was able to explain that he was born in Smolensk and that he was Muslim and that he was from Uzbekistan. And so they took his passport and his phone, but I think they eventually you know gave it back to him. But a bunch of those people got arrested. And I know, Dimitri, I think you mentioned something about a, an interesting deal with the, the head of the Jewish autonomous oblast and the situation with, with, with Dagestan. But in general, there's... Um, you know, we hear all of these Muslim MMA fighters are obviously coming out in support of Palestine. And what was the actual plan for this to go on? I, I don't personally believe that maybe more than a few people were perhaps convinced by, you know, psyoping Ukrainian telegram channels to go and do this to make Russia look bad. I think the anti-Zionist pro-Palestinian sentiment is a lot more powerful than that. And what was their plan? I don't know. Find a few people that may be worth a few dollars, take them hostage, and maybe try to get, you know, maybe try to, you know, expand the hostage situation from the Gaza Strip into Dagestan. You know, we don't know what these guys are thinking. Obviously, they succumbed to some some passionate, uh, some influence that they may not have, may, maybe shouldn't have succumbed to. But in general, I mean, Russia is these. Russia is a federation, and some of these regions have some autonomy. So there's going to be some wacky behavior. Of course, we see you know Tatarstan has a lot of people. You know Chechnya. We we all are familiar with the Chechen wars. And then you know look, there's even the Jewish Autonomous Oblast out there, even though it's you know less than one percent Jewish. Yeah, I think the, the funniest story I think that came out of this is the chief prosecutor of the Republic of Dagestan is actually a man with a very um, shall we say Jewish name. <laughs> His name is Victor. Isaacovich, so his father's name is Isaac, Ep. And Ep, of course, is a German last name, but it's, in Russian it's pronounced Ep as an Epstein. It's from the same root. So again, a German last name, middle name is middle name is Isaac, most likely, and, and him being a lawyer, a prosecutor, most likely he's from he's from one of them, you know, one of those clans, and he's the chief prosecutor of Dagestan. So he's the one in charge of actually preparing the law, you know, the, the cases against all these, you know, at least the, at least 80 to 100 Dagestani uh, rioters. So again, I don't really envy them at this point, because look, there's the, the literal chief prosecutor of your republic is, um, you know, 
probably has family in Israel. So, and but funny enough, the Jewish Autonomous Oblast, which is this uh, small oblast, and it's essentially this region in Siberia which Stalin and Khrushchev prepared for an, a potential second Israel, so a second home for all Russian Jews and where they can live and have their own laws and so some sort of autonomy. But it ha- pretty much has no Jews living there, and its flag is very much similar to that of the Alphabet community. It's a it's a rainbow flag, very bizarre. It's, it's almost like a fairy tale land. When you tell someone about it, it's near Mongolia. They won't, they won't believe you. But the prosecutor of that place is actually a man named Zarbek Magometovich, so Mohamedich uh, Jahotov. So it's essentially a Dagestani or a Chechen or perhaps even a Tatarstani Muslim who's the prosecutor of the Jewish Autonomous Again, Very, very funny story. Um, I think it kind of expands on the, you know, just the fact that Israeli-Russian relations are very much, they're very beginning question, not in, not just in the media, but also on, you know, not, not just in mainstream media, but also on social media. We see this funny, again, Gabriel de Russian, right? One of the um, potential heirs to the throne of Russia, one of the inheritors of the, of the Romanov dynasty, in fact, starts posting memes on his Telegram channel. We've spoken about him before, but his particular opinion, you know, being a descendant of Emperor Nicholas I of Russia, you know, the Romanov dynasty, is just directly accusing Israelis of war crimes against Palestinians. And when this Dagestani pogrom occurs, he simply posts a very interesting image of a Russian, uh, a, a fit Russian man spanking a um, what appears to be a Jewish rabbi on the bum with a stick, and it's the the, the story essentially the I guess the it's a very anti-Semitic cartoon, but the, the the slogan on the cartoon just says we we will hit this uh, vile bastard with a stick until he stops his disgusting acts something like that, and it's just like. Again, very, very brave of the Gabriel the Russian posting this particular image. But again, hilarious. Um, the Russians, I think, are beginning to notice. They're beginning to notice, and I think the world is beginning to notice. The Islamic community, the Orthodox community, it may perhaps providentially this conflict in in Palestine and Israel. Again, very tragic, but perhaps it's waking people up to the fact that there's a, there are certain people around the world who act with impunity, and perhaps they should be questioned. Well, frankly. You know, I'm seeing a lot of normies on Twitter that are starting to notice. It's getting a little, you know, it's getting a little crazy, the amount that, you know, this has really blown open the lid. Of course, there's the entire liberal angle where everybody is seeing the atrocities. And at this point, though, we, actual liberalism and these sorts of things are not ascendant. It's this left-wing sort of communism thing. And you even have the, the silly MAGA communist, you know, Jackson Hinkle's got almost 2 million followers from this. I'm still, I'm skeptical of the numbers, but, you know, this is a big worldwide deal. And again, a lot of these people are, they're not dishonest. They're not dishonest MAGA communists. They're not dishonest far-left libtards. They're going to actually come around to the Christian civilizational angle, which is just the truth angle, which is that, you know, the West, the Occident, Christianity is and has always been in a civilizational conflict with with the people that, you know, have their little state there in the Levant. And that's, uh, that's and more and more people are starting to realize the importance of that, even in a secular country like America. But I, I think even outside of that question becoming broad, the, the eschatological angle, and not just that, just the, 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 the scale of World War Three is starting to be be seen and in Russia, I mean Strelkov, he, he recently was was interviewed and the person asked him, is it a vicious cycle? Moreover, there's some kind of apocalyptic reflection on everything and uh, Strelkov said, yes, yes, exactly. We are now at least seeing a harbinger of what is to come. I understand that I am carried along by this flow. I cannot stop this flow and I observe the process from inside. This keeps me calm. But the interviewer says, but the apocalypse is a global scenario. It is not written for Russia alone. He's like, naturally, I've already told you that I believe in fate. I believe in God, but maybe not as strongly as I would like, but nevertheless, since I wasn't killed in 2014 by either side, it means I'm still needed for something. Let's wait and see. 
so he's very clearly, you know, waiting and seeing what is to happen. He had, we discussed his analysis of the conflict in Israel-Palestine. He's, you know, hoping that Russia doesn't get involved. But I think he sees World War III very much, you know, on the horizon for America and Iran, which is, you know, that's that's when everything starts to get crazy. But, you know, speaking of, you know, things spreading and everything, we probably did, we really didn't see the South American front developing as fast as it has, frankly. But this... The situation between Guyana and Venezuela, which, again, Venezuela is very relevant to the, you know, to the Russian world, too, you know, even throughout the this Ukrainian war after the Maidan and Donetsk issues, Venezuela was obviously supportive of, you know, of the secessionists in the Donetsk and Luhansk and everything like that. So Venezuela has strong support from Russia and all of its, all of its ambitions, really. But I wonder if Russia will weigh in on the Essequibo situation because, I mean, we're having some pretty strong statements. Of course, the, the leader of the military and the presidents of Guyana, you know, they went to Essequibo and were like, we will never give an inch of our territory. But at the same time, we have Maduro's son, who's, you know, a high-ranking official saying it'll be the job of our generation, you know, this coming rising generation to reclaim Essequibo. So a lot of irredentist kind of bellicose rhetoric. But Dimitri, could you maybe fill us in on the this impending referendum? Like, what is the... What is the situation in this uh, this new territorial dispute? Yeah, it does it does appear that you know most countries again it's just like Nasrallah followed in Putin's example and copied his speech patterns. You know, Putin speaks for forty minutes, Nasrallah speaks for one hour. So does Venezuela. You know, the, the Russia Ukraine they have announced referendums in order to decide the future of certain geographical areas. So does Venezuela. You know, instead of just openly sending troops into the Essequibo rainforest to the Essequibo River or even to secure this particular region from Guyana, they say, look, no, we're going to have a referendum on the third of December this year before the because uh, Venezuela will have a presidential election next year so they're trying to get this sorted out at least you know if if Maduro and his particular family continue to you know expand f- southwards in order if they can actually obtain this land it'll benefit their p- political standing in Venezuela for quite strongly despite the fact that the West do consider Maduro to be a dictator but m- moving ahead he still claims to be democratic and Venezuelans will be voting actually, you know, on the fact of the territorial integrity of this particular Essequibo River territory, which spans, again, like we mentioned last week, two-thirds of Guyana is this particular rainforest mountainous. It's somewhat mountainous towards the southwest side, but mostly rainforest, river, very um, very lush, beautiful land. But again, the, the purpose of this land, or at least the, the reason why there's so many uh, so, much, so many arguments over it these days is because the, of, of its uh, gas as well as oil, ref- the, the, the oil deposits there on the land. As we mentioned, international oil companies supported by Guyana, which has an incredibly fast growth of GDP because it sells these oils to the, uh, it sells its own oil, its crude oil to these international companies. And now Venezuela also wants to have some sort of administrative and administrative and even bragging rights over this particular area. It wants to be in charge Venezuela does have certain chips in its pocket, especially with the Biden administration. It does have, it wants to have control over this particular area. And how they're going to do it is through a referendum. Naturally, they're going to claim that, look, our citizens will vote whether or not this particular land, and it's not, I don't even think they're going to enforce this particular election or the referendum vote on, on the people living in that rainforesty area, because simply it's so sparsely populated. And the folks living there, I think the majority don't even have access to proper technology, given that it's it's really, um, in fact, it's, it's not the richest part of the country. There are no major cities there. So it will be very interesting how the Venezuelans do vote. And frankly, like looking at the, um, the state of the United States and the conflict in the Middle East, like we mentioned last week, Conrad, 
it doesn't look like the US will intervene into this particular referendum. I think they'll just let it go ahead. And Guyana has protested. Guyana's like, wait, you're having a referendum about our territory, about our country, without our say-so? And again, Guyana forced a, a complaint into the International Court of Justice, and they've um, issued a complaint to the United Nations. But again, as Putin said in many of his speeches, right, and you know, we quote Putin a lot, but he has made very, very powerful, pertinent, precedental statements where he says, look, international law to many people, especially hypocritical actors around the world, it simply does not matter. So should we follow it to the letter? Probably not. And in fact, Venezuela seems to be following that particular example here in uh, in the Essequibo River and around these big oil oil deposit facilities and spots. Well, and Venezuela has more, I think, leeway to work here because, again, they they have so much of their money and so much of the way they're able to kind of fund their their nationalization of everything and you know the the communist system that they're working with is these big oil deposits they have offshore. And Essequibo gives them basically access to you know over two-thirds of Guyana's offshore claims, which have huge extension of these oil and LNG fields and shale deposits that, you know, of course, these companies, Chevron, Hess, you know, that just got bought by Chevron, they're, they're trying to exploit ExxonMobil. And as, as of right now, the, the reality of the Persian Gulf in the Middle East and the fact that, you know, Iran, Qatar, Oman, you know, they could Saudi Arabia, they could all completely destroy the West from their control of the energy. The, the Biden administration has uh, basically temporarily lifted a four-year ban on the restrictions and sanctions and embargoes that were on the Venezuelan oil industry. And now Chevron expects production in the country to increase 15% by the end of the year. Chevron, uh, they tapped a Venezuelan kind of contact that they have with the oil industry to run their Latin American operations. This is after that massive acquisition of Hess and everything. And this is Chevron kind of hedging, I guess, with Venezuela as well as ExxonMobil moves into Guyana. So it seems that Venezuela thinks they have some leeway to work with. They've got, you know, some capital behind them. The U.S. doesn't seem to be able to push on them as hard to get them back into their sphere of influence to do some kind of color revolution. So it seems that this is, uh, they're going to, they're willing to keep going on this. And again, Guyana, tiny population, less than a million people. Venezuela, population powerhouse of the you know, of South America has a lot of people for its size, you know, obviously not as many as Brazil or anything, but, you know, pretty large population and a large diaspora as well, because the government doesn't, you know, they haven't made it a paradise for their people per se. But in general, I mean, this, these, these regions are relevant as well, because obviously Venezuela, Bolivia, uh, a few others, as well as even surprised ones like Colombia, who is historically an ally of Israel, all these countries have rescinded their ambassadors, you know, severed diplomatic ties basically with Israel over the Palestinian issue, which again, that's pretty strong considering these countries don't have, some of them have somewhat significant Muslim populations, but none of these countries have Muslim pluralities or anything like that. So it's, it's pretty interesting that these, again, these South American, very kind of socialist, you know, again, Cold War influenced, you know, enemies of the kind of West. Again, each of these countries have those regimes. There's in South America, the main game is it's whether you're kind of a U.S. backed center right capitalist, you know, Israeli type shill, or again, like a Chavist type third world, you know, pro Amerindian kind of communist type. That's the main dialectic. And there are legitimate right wingers that, you know, transcend that, but they've very much been disempowered by, by U.S. soft and very much hard power. I mean, we've got all sorts of military interventions down there, whether it's, you know, Nicaragua, Colombia, you know, around the borders of Venezuela and whatnot. So our hands, the, the Zog hands are all around that region. But 
Alright, Dimitri, unless you have anything else to say possibly about the uh, the situation in Essequibo and whatnot, which we're going to be watching closely, we got to probably transition to Africa, which, you know, a similar possible type of, of conflict is brewing as Ethiopia seems to be uh, amassing troops to possibly go in on Eritrea. This is... We, we talked to Dean Arnold in the past about this, but what, what this seems to be a somewhat surprising development, despite the fact that we did just talk about, you know, the Houthis striking the Dalek Islands, where the Israelis have a base. So, you know, this, this region has been relevant, but, you know, the Ethiopians, they, the civil war there had been just wrapping up, but it seems that they may be, they may be taking it to the Eritreans, because we know the Eritreans had been, I think, supporting some of the Tyrians who had been waging the civil war against the Ethiopian government. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's a developing situation for sure. Yeah, I think finally the Ethiopians, and mind you, Ethiopia also receives at least, uh, I believe they received $1.8 billion of US aid last year, actually from the Biden administration, similar to Venezuela, receiving 330, I mean, a lot less, $330 million in US aid in order to assist against the migrant caravans over there. But in Ethiopia, I think the US aid, mostly naturally for humanitarian purposes to support the various famines and the fact that if Ethiopia was in a civil war, as you mentioned, um, I think it's mostly to bolster US support in Ethiopia because Ethiopia is this uh, like country of over 100 million, po- you know, gigantic population in Africa, the second most populous African nation. And it really hasn't taken a stance as, as a rising, I guess, third or second world nation hasn't taken a stance on whose side it will be on. Will it be on a pro-Israeli side or a pro-Muslim side, given the fact that it's majority Christian? And you, you did mention the Eritreans. I think this is a really interesting developing story because, yes, the civil war, if the Ethiopian government at least suspect that the Eritreans were funding some of these civil war factions, like the Tigrayans, for example, will they take an SMO type approach? to Eritrea itself. And as we mentioned on the 10th episode here with Dean Arnold, the Ethiopia's main struggle, I think, uh, over the last 50 years since since the, their um, wars in Eritrea, I believe they've been landlocked, right? So Eritrea itself uh, kind of occupies, if you just imagine, Ethiopia is essentially like a circle or a square type country, and they're being cut off by this little strip of land between Ethiopia and the Red Sea. And the Red Sea, of course, gives you access to the Suez Canal, all these various trade routes with India, things of that nature, the Persian Gulf, very lucrative position to be and of course if you can finance a port you know build an infrastructure over there but the Eritreans somehow control that shoreline similar to how Croatia and Montenegro cut Serbia off and make it landlocked cut Serbia off from the um, Adriatic Sea and from the Mediterranean so very precarious position for the Ethiopians and if they can find the pretext Conrad in order to perhaps start a special military operation of sorts into Eritrea in order to finally destroy any sort of subversive influence Eritrea may have on their on their local politics I think it'll go a long way now Eritrea itself is a really complex complicated country Country. Their president uh, slash dictator is playing, you know, he's playing on a lot of tables at the same time as is gambling with multiple forces. He is one of the most pro-Russian African presidents. In fact, he's one of the only African presidents who did not vote against Russia since the beginning of the SMO. He visited uh, Russia during the African-Russian summit. So the Eritrean president, and at the same time, he hosts Eritrea hosted a U.S. base for a very long time, and it still has the largest Israeli base actually located in Eritrea today. So to say that Eritrea is not anti-Western is, I think, a bit of a you know a bit of a hard point to sell. But to also claim that it's anti-Russian or anti, say, multipolarity is also hard. To, so Eritrea is a bit in the middle here, but so is Ethiopia. So in fact, we're seeing this kind of mixed bag of neutrality and whether or not Ethiopia will strike out against this younger brother near the sea and sort of you know, return all these historical Ethiopian lands back into its fold, I think will matter quite a bit.
Yeah, I mean, Ethiopia, they've been in this, the civil war started to wrap up, but the Ethiopian church in and of itself is almost in an analogous situation with the church in Ukraine. The, the Tigray region, which was an Orthodox capital, you know, one of the main centers of Orthodox, of Oriental Orthodoxy, you know, in Ethiopia, they declared autocephaly, you know, in 2021 due to the, you know, they, they claimed the central Ethiopian church in Addis Ababa not doing enough to denounce the supposed atrocities being committed against Christians in the region siding with the Ahmed government, of course, there's accusations that this schism may have happened perhaps at the behest of certain U.S. interests who were perhaps stoking the war against a growing, and Ethiopia, second most populous country in Africa, hundreds of millions of people, they have this grand Ethiopian renaissance dam, they're damming the Nile, again, if they had sea access, again, and not to get too, you know, racial here, but these are, these are Nilotic people, they're not Bantu, you know, they had a true civilization that was never you know, colonized properly for any extended period of time besides, you know, the brief Italian occupation. But, you know, this is a civilization in waiting, maybe the only one you could really reference in Africa outside of some kind of Muslim stuff going on, maybe over in Mali and whatnot. But, you know, this is a civilization that is definitely being watched and, you know, somewhat subdued, especially from its Christian perspective by the powers that be. I mean, this massive Christian juggernaut in Africa definitely could be could be a danger to the powers that be, especially if, you know, I would love it if, you know, the Ethiopians could come into communion with, with Russian orthodoxy, and they, this could be a, a beautiful benefit of, of multipolarity. But I, I'm pretty sure, as far as I'm aware, that the uh, Eritrean Orthodox Church, as well as the Ethiopians, also have some kind of communal issues and whatnot, and that, that manifests in the fact that these two countries, you know, very similar ethno-religiously and whatnot, between the split between Muslims and, and Oriental Orthodox. But, you know, bitter, bitter disputes, you know, Eritrea, interesting shape, looking like a ham bone, but, you know, they kind of play everybody. Like I said, they have Israeli basis, they have Iranian influence, they have U.S. influence, they're allies with Russia, they're, you know, the North Korea of Africa. It's very much a an interesting situation they have going on there. But being next to Ethiopia, eventually, I mean, at a certain level, Ethiopia, by sheer population and influence alone, they may, they may be willing to... They, they may have to, I guess, decide if they want access to the sea, if that would be valuable enough to them. But again, obviously, they're in no position to really be too aggressive right now in the midst of that civil war. But I get, we'll have to see what happens. Again, at this point, Russia and the U.S. are they're fighting so many proxy wars on so many fronts, whether it's in Sahel. We remember Libya is still going on. The north of Syria, Turkey, and Russia are still clashing. So some of these people, they might start to get you know, a little bit of fatigue as far as their ability to coordinate all of these conflicts. But, you know, we do know that it is all towards some of these grander geostrategic visions. And the Red Sea in this region, and I mean, Ethiopia has taken a lot of, you know, loans from China and, and the Belt and Road Initiative versus, you know, kind of the IMEC initiative is still very much a specter that looms over all of the conflicts in this region. Yeah, that's right. And all of this, of course, plays and builds a larger puzzle of like the, how the multipolar world essentially interacts with these various actors. Like you, you mentioned Djibouti, like the next door country to Eritrea, very familiar. Djibouti has both an American base and the largest Chinese overseas base as well. So it's quite bizarre, or at least the largest Chinese military base in, in Africa is actually right next door to Eritrea and Ethiopia. Djibouti is even much smaller than Eritrea and just a fraction. It's just on the coast of that, essentially on the other end of the Suez Canal. So that connection point uh, of the Red Sea to the Persian Gulf. It's a very curious situation there. But again, it's not quite set in stone exactly who 
who attacked the Israeli base in Eritrea, which is why the news, I think, has brought up this at least Eritrean Ethiopian issue to the point. So, and the Israeli base in Eritrea, I think, is one of the more equipped ones. It's Israel's only and largest base overseas, at least abroad. And it does host an, uh, an Israeli airport, which, again, Israeli fighter fighter planes, they don't have to fly very far. Only, it's, I think it's only a hundred, several hundred kilometers in order to get over to Yemen and, and start bombing the Houthis there. So you have to consider it's a very key position. Perhaps it was a Houthi missile or an Ethiopian missile. It's, again, not stationed as exactly who bombed this particular base in Eritrea. And funny enough, there was it wasn't just the base that was bombed. There's also the Mount of Amber Sawyer. And essentially, this really tall mountain in Eritrea it has a it has this massive observation tower. And on the tower itself, there's a huge Star of David and a missile hit that tower as well. So it's like a kind of signal of some sort. This, this mountain's used by the Israelis to overlook the Red Sea. And it's like the highest observation point in that particular geographic region. So very symbolic uh, missile shot at the uh, at the Zionist tower over there, like a kind of Lord of the Rings Tolkien-ish, I think. Um, <laughs> but even if it was the Houthis, it's a great sense of humor strike again. But yeah, very dangerous base uh, for both the Houthis and anyone in the Ethiopian region who's seeks to sort of uh, make a statement against Israel. So if anyone does invade Eritrea, again, the Israelis will not allow their jets and their fighter planes, their bombers stationed in the base to be captured by what they probably see as uh, subhuman Africans, uh, most likely, given that their attitude towards the Goyim. And actually, you know, Ethiopians are some of the most philo-Semitic people, I would say, in terms of, like, there is a history of anti-Semitic you know, anti -Semitic attitudes, but they are, they, some Ethiopians consider themselves a lost tribe of Israel. Right, Conrad? There is that like history of Ethiopian immigrants going over to Israel, especially in the early years, you know, claiming that they're one of the lost tribes, you know, after the Assyrian scattering of northern Israel. And there's also the claims of the you know Ethiopian connection to King Solomon and the Ark of the Covenant. It's a very luxurious history over there, but in fact it may be maybe exploited to some capacity by by the West. We'll have to see how that goes. But again, the hopes are high that Ethiopia does engage more with China, more of Russia, when Russia does actually, uh, you know, it frees itself of its obligations in Ukraine. And in fact, it can move itself into this larger BRICS coalition. And in fact, this kind of stays away from that corrupting Western influence. Well, you mentioned the Star of David, and we talked about Amalek earlier. And I think it's pretty rich talking about that kind of stuff, people using this not Jewish, not Christian, not you know, pagan satanic symbol from, you know, the, the pagan, you know, tribes surrounding the Holy Land at the time that they've adopted that as their flag and symbol, but want to want to call everybody else that they think gets in their way Amalek. And it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty, pretty rich coming from coming from these devil worshippers. But the um, before we get into some church news and everything, of course, you know, the Chinese have been watching this all stoically, you know, the, the stoic panda eating his bamboo, waiting, biding his time. But, you know, they've been conducting pretty large-scale exercises around Taiwan. Huge aircrafts have been buzzing the region. Ships have been, you know, exercising their authority in the, you know, the Taiwan Straits that they, you know, completely consider theirs. And, of course, last week we discussed that Japan and Russia have resumed civilian ferries to and from one another. And in general, the the region, it does seem that, we talked about this before, how the, we know Blinken is really the one in control at this point. You know, him and the Jews and the State Department are pulling the strings, Biden just a puppet, you know, he may have these more goyish instincts towards wanting to have the Israelis restrained, wanting to seek these two-state solutions. Even Blinken is working and meeting with Benny Gantz. They are really trying to throw Netanyahu under the bus and not, you know, whatever fallout from this happens, they're going to throw it on him. I think Biden even said that he thinks Netanyahu will be gone in a few months. So they're hoping that a slightly less hawkish, less, you know, overtly supremacist and genocidal regime will rise up. They'll be able to clean up all the things you know, have a multinational force occupy Gaza, which will still ultimately give the Zionists whatever they want, but they'll have, you know, 
cleaned up their optics by getting rid of Netanyahu and, you know, getting rid of that disaster, which would be a huge victory for, for actual Zionism and the New World Order to, to seem that they're actually being more sensible, despite the fact that they literally are just pushing two million people out of a region that they had already been, you know, using as an open-air concentration camp. So it's pretty crazy, but but China is is watching all of this, and they've, of course, expressed solidarity for the two-state solution. With they're, they're very much kind of following Russia's lead in all of this, but I, I think if... I think they were very much watching Nasrallah's speech as well. And if things had gone a certain way, they might have said, you know what, let's go here on these Keenman Islands and maybe even make a play on Taiwan itself. But again, I do still think that China is very capable of resolving that problem peacefully and that they very much want to do that. But unless you have anything else to say on those issues, Dimitri, I think we got to talk about some of the bishops and some of these issues going on in Ukraine and Moldova in the church. Yeah, only that I heard very interesting uh, analysis from a, actually a Georgian politician uh, on R- Russian TV who did mention very briefly that you know, China and the US, essentially, they're waiting until roughly 2025 in order to make this large trade of, you know, they are building that microprocessing plant, uh, the you know, the big factory from, you know, based on a Taiwanese model in America at the moment, and they're building it at breakneck speed because they know that as soon as China does move on Taiwan, the world may be starved of, well, not the world, but definitely the West may be starved of uh, microprocessors. And in fact, they don't want the Chinese to actually capture those industries in Taiwan. And China, why China's waiting until 2025, or at least wants to postpone as because it is building that the big great sea wall of the fences along the South China Sea. Essentially, China was always invaded. We spoke about this on the Dissident Mama podcast, but China's weakness always comes from the sea, whether it be the Japanese, British, German fleets. It's its main source of defense needs to be on, on, on the sea. And so the South China Sea with its very small rocky islands, they're building military bases there, anti-air capacities to protect them from aircraft carriers, long-range missile strikers, essentially a great wall of China in the sea, you know, close to Taiwan so that they can essentially move move on Taiwan possibly when that's complete by around 2025. So that was the interesting prognosis uh, we heard recently from Russia, you know, some pretty respectful political commentators on Russian news. Very interesting, I'd say. So that's probably the only bit of news I have on, on that particular area of the world. But nevertheless, people are still looking at it. Look, it's, it's essentially a theater which will open up. The only question is when and looking at in the short term, it's within six six to, I don't know, 18 months, roughly. So we are looking for an escalation in the South China Sea in that Chinese-Taiwanese conflict. And I think the America understands it. Elon Musk understands that he's spoken about it openly. Everyone knows that the Taiwan question will be resolved very soon. Yeah, as far as the, the issue with the, the sea and everything, it's kind of the story of this whole, many of these conflicts in the multipolar, and the multipolar rise in general. I mean, Russia is the land empire going up against... The Anglo-Americans, you know, the sea empire, the the land-based teleocracy versus the sea cosmopolitan thalassocracy. And China and Russia are both kind of those land empires. Of course, China had at least tried to fortify its land border with the Mongols, with the actual Great Wall of China. And Russia, of course, has its vast, you know, the pale of the, well, the former pale of settlement is just this vast expanse with which they can retreat, 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 and just, just, just pull into themselves and destroy whatever army seeks to, you know, strike at the heart of the empire. But despite all of that, both of those empires were able to be kind of subdued by these sea powers. And part of the operation in Ukraine is Russia asserting itself in Crimea, making sure that it has deep water ports year round, that it isn't from a military perspective landlocked for, you know, half of the year. And China's doing the same thing. They're securing Taiwan. They're securing access to the South China Sea. They're redrawing these maps. They're pushing the Filipino influence in their northern maritime borders. They're pushing that down. 
and they're trying to make it to where if these sea powers do try to make a move on them, balkanize them, do, you know, make them into one of these crazy maps that Gunther Fellinger likes to post, they are going to have, you know, like you said, a great seawall of China to prevent that from happening, and they themselves, frankly, in that pursuit have realized that they could just surpass the U.S. possibly in maritime superiority in general. You know, within the next 50 years, China, they're building all, they're the only ones that have capacity to build these carriers at scale. So China being the largest blue water navy in the world, that, that could be something easily we see in our lifetimes. It, it, it's just very much something that, again, we know China doesn't have these ideological influences towards World War III, like even some of these Muslim groups that we're discussing do. But they're watching and they're waiting, and they do realize that ultimately the arc of history and the long game is, is really moving towards them. But uh, before we talk about uh, some of the situations in between church relations with Gaza and churches around the world, as well as recently was the Feast of St. Gabriel of Georgia, as well as the Halloween anniversary of the martyrdom of Brother Jose. But as far as I'm aware, it seems that there is some house arrest issues going on of our one of our favorite bishops in Ukraine, as well as some schism problems going on possibly in Moldova, Dimitri. Yes, yeah, some huge issues in Ukraine. Uh, naturally, Bishop Theodosius of Cherkasy. Uh, Cherkasy is that particular diocese in which which falls, um, you know, the city of Uman, which we spoke about with the whole Israeli pilgrimage over there, kind of is in that diocese. Again, we're seeing issues from the Ukrainians naturally persecuting the bishop of that diocese. He's, again, on house arrest, not able to attend church. I mean, he can only serve house liturgies at home. He has an ankle bracelet, and the, the court ordered this to be in place, like essentially an interim order of sorts to allow for two months so essentially the bishop is not able to serve for two months and this is a huge loss given that this is one of the largest dioceses in ukraine actually it's just the southwest of kiev so i mean, I mean it's just the church persecution continues the pressure on the orthodox ukrainian church never unrelenting for a year and a half now so all these people are confessors of the faith and we've heard like a pretty uh disturbing and maybe and quite a sad story actually from ukraine as well uh the ukrainian orthodox church on its main website the the, the synod reported this that a young orthodox ukrainian man named john markovich who was the son of an orthodox ukrainian priest father michael and he's also the nephew of an orthodox bishop of bogoslavsk bishop augustine so he's a you know his family are very distinct a uh, distinguished clergyman of Ukraine has died in combat. He was conscripted into the Ukrainian military and killed in combat. I believe either, they didn't pronounce where, but perhaps either in Donetsk, maybe even under Avdiivka itself, or in Zaporozhye somewhere, or you know, it's just it's just a tragedy. Again, these the entire it kind of paints a large picture where it's like, well, what's happening in Ukraine? It's a genocide of Russian, Slavic, white European people, and it definitely of Orthodox people. So it's like two birds of one stone. Not, it's not just Europeans who are dying; it's Europeans, the majority of which belong to the True Church. So. Uh, again, uh, the powers of the world are benefiting from this particular conflict, and they're also benefiting by naturally prolonging it by supporting figures like Zelensky and the Ukrainian government and all these delusional ideologies that, are, frankly, abound in the Ukrainian state at the moment. Well, didn't didn't mm -hmm. a bishop get arrested for having an icon of Tsar Nicholas II, or wasn't that a, was that a pretext? I recall reading that. It, he wasn't arrested for that. Uh, the court simply arrested him in order to further. So it's similar to um, the court essentially ordered this arrest on him because they're saying, "Well, we found new, we have new information in order to prolong the lawsuit." So again, the, the his particular case has been has reemerged, but during the questioning, actually at his house when he was being arrested, they found yeah. Uh, I found an icon of Tsar Nicholas II, the last emperor of Russia, the martyr who was killed by the Bolsheviks and uh, ritually murdered. And they found an icon of the Tsar and they asked, well, Bishop, well, 
this is a this is a Russian emperor here, and he said, look, he had to explain to them that Tsar Nicholas II is can be venerated, and it's actually my human right to venerate my saints according to, you know, my religious principles. And he's a very venerated he's a venerated saint across all of Ukraine, not just in Russia, and he's not just a Russian saint; he's a saint for all Orthodox Christians. The fact that Bishop Theodosius needed to explain that to the SBU officials to their face, I mean, again. It escalates. We we not jokingly, but we kind of hypothetically stated that look, when persecution does escalate in Ukraine, what they're going to do is they're going to go into the houses of these clergymen, laity, members of different parish councils, again over the eight eight to ten thousand various parish communities of Ukraine, and they're going to search houses, they're going to find books, lives of saints, Bible you know, Bibles with certain commentary in them. Right, and they're going to find icons as well, icons of people you know, perhaps uh, certain saints which they don't like, and that's how they will persecute Christians. That's how they will bully them and harass them. Is point to these particular items and people of people that are venerated and harassed through that, those particular means. And now it's literally come to pass. Like we're seeing examples of it in real time. It's just the abuse of of an exceeding scale. It's abuse of a very exceeding scale. And Bishop Theodosius. Of Cherkasy, I think, is is a huge victim of this. So we should be keeping him in our prayers because, again, he's been in the media way too much, I think, for his own liking as well over the last year. Yes, and speaking of, of course, the church situation further developing and actually involving its neighbors, the Ukrainian, the schismatic Ukrainian Orthodox Church has begun, at least allegedly, it has sent a bishop to Moldova. And in fact, you know, there is there are talks between the Moldovan politicians and the schismatic Ukrainian Orthodox Church of them opening up churches of their own in Moldova. So, you know, we speak about jurisdictional anomalies in American Western countries. Well, the Ukrainian schismatics are getting in on the Moldovan Moldovan Orthodox Church. Now, Moldova is a very interesting country because it's kind of between Ukraine. It's like this uh, strip of land between Ukraine and Romania. Historically, of course, it was a, a diocese of uh, the diocese of Bessarabia, which belonged to the Russian Orthodox Church. But now, of course, it's physically disconnected. The Bishop of Chisinau is a Russian bishop. But the this kind of coincides the Ukrainian invasion. The Ukrainian schismatic invasion of Moldova coincides with the Romanian Orthodox Church, which is completely canonical and right. They all, they're also looking to expand into the historical land of Moldova itself from the other side. And so the Russians and the, bishop, the Russian Bishop Vladimir of Kishinev, who is very a very apolitical man, if anything, he's probably praying and begging Patriarch Kirill to, to be left out. In fact, he's one of the bishops who recently, during the meeting between Russian bishops in Moscow, yeah, uh, he he was the one who didn't sing along to the pray pray prayer for Holy Rus and the prayer for Russian victory over Ukraine. So he is really apolitical. This is the Russian Bishop of Moldova, and he doesn't like the fact that now he's in this pincer maneuver. You have the Romanians moving in from the left, and you have the Ukrainian schismatics again moving in from the right. The Moldovan you know Moldovan government, uh, unlike the Transnistrian government next door, is very pro-Western. It's very NATO-based. Um, so he's not going to get any support from the. Or, you know, from the from the Orthodox uh, from the politicians there, because the politicians are simply not members of the Orthodox Church in any capacity. And frankly, the entire Romanian situation, which we'll be exploring further in the upcoming Avery Hour episode, I think is very interesting. I think given the fact that Romania, Moldova, these are very brotherly countries, and the Russians essentially are only temporary. You can say historically, they're temporary caretakers of this land, given that it was liberated by the Russians from the Ottoman yoke. So historically, the Russians are there, kind of temporarily, you can say. But again, definitely Ukrainian schismatics do not belong. And so Ukrainian schismatics attempting to move further west is, I think, a little bit bizarre. It's almost like a, a, a bizarre um, symbolic move, not just towards the EU, but towards NATO, but in a diocesan ecclesiastical sense, uh, ecclesiological sense. Very toxic move, I think.
Well, no, very confusing for Romania because now we've got, you know, the confusing situation between the Romanian patriarchate, the Moscow patriarchate. Now we have these silly schismatics coming from Ukraine. And then there's also a million old calendar schismatics in Romania. So uh, Romania is starting to look a little like America as far as some of these jurisdictional issues are concerned. But hopefully I, I, I'm confident that some of these could get resolved, especially as the Ukraine issue gets resolved. Most notably, the removal of Zelensky, who's, you know, the one writing these checks and giving the political confidence to these silly schismatics thinking that they can act in this way. And, and it and it does remind us, you know, St. Gabriel Ergabadze, his, you know, we've talked about him on the show before he prophesied about, you know, perhaps Georgia being protected in the times of trouble to come. And again, his feast was recently, and one of his prophecies I was recently sent by a listener on the show, he said that it was a priest was talking to St. Gabriel, and he basically said something like they had gotten back, just come back from Ukraine, from pilgrimages to the Kiev caves, and he was talking to St. Gabriel, and St. Gabriel said, oh, well, you know, how was Ukraine? How was everything? And he was explaining things, and he was... I think the priest said something about it was hard to enjoy because, you know, he was distracted with certain sins or something he was struggling with. And St. Gabriel was like, oh, well, when it comes to Ukraine in the next few decades, a joker will come to rule and it will cause, you know, great trouble for the Christians there. And he thought that he was, he thought that he considered that like metaphorically and uh, pastorally as a reference to his sins, him being a joker, you know, bringing issues to Ukraine. But he said, unfortunately, now that I've seen things come to pass, I realize he was just talking about Zelensky. <laughs> so, so as far as, uh, that goes at St. Gabriel. He was always, he was tapped in, you know, one of our, one of our favorite saints, fool for Christ. We, you know, he burned the Lenin image. You know, there's some, we, we've talked about him before. Maybe we'll have an, maybe we'll talk to, you know, we should reach out to uh, Bishop Nicolos. He's the bishop that locally canonized Father Seraphim Rose. He knew St. Gabriel. So maybe that's someone we'll reach out to have on the show. But as far as other uh, kind of interesting church news and stuff goes, the, uh, Jordanville pilgrims were flocking to Jordanville Monastery to venerate and celebrate the uh, the anniversary of the martyrdom of Brother Jose Munoz, you know, future Saint Joseph, who we have talked about in episode three of Ether Hour, and the fact that Halloween just passed, you know, and everyone's been talking about, you know, the kind of satanic occult things going on in the world. We've I've got one other monastery update, but Dimitri, maybe you could fill the people in on why it's important that they they remember and you know think about Brother Jose. Yeah, I think there's several reasons. Brother Jose, I think he's very appealing given the fact that of his Catholic origin, he grew up a very pious Catholic Christian, but when introduced to Orthodox Christianity and during his travels around around the world, especially to Mount Athos, he did, of course, engage in, with Orthodoxy and was, uh, and was taken and chrismated into the church. And this story of him and the copy of the Iberon Theotokos icon, of course, it's really uh, staggering as a as an Orthodox layman. Again, it's a, he was never a clergyman; he wasn't a, he wasn't a priest nor a deacon. And some people say that you know we call him Brother Jose because allegedly, in secret, perhaps he was tonsured into monasticism. But even then, he never revealed it in private private talk. And he traveled around the world over the over the 1980s uh, and early 1990s and. Get, uh, essentially visited different churches in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, America, and he lived initially in Montreal, actually, with this icon. So that was his home there. And he essentially traveled around the world with this icon, which just streamed the myrrh and provided healing to people. And it's just, you know, just a miracle working, the second most popular miracle working icon. And at the time, I think it was probably the most popular in the 1980s of the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. And I would say in the entire Western world, probably after the Kursk group, Theotokos icon. And, you know, mysteriously, as we mentioned in the our earlier AFER hour episode, which if anything, folks should subscribe for free just to listen to that particular early episode because we cover it so in depth that Brother Jose was martyred on, on Halloween night, actually, um, in Athens when, you know, he was visiting, again, visiting Mount 
Mount Athos, visiting Greece, visiting all the holy places. He was always on a pilgrimage. He was always traveling, never had a home besides Montreal at one point where he stayed for a very long time, for a long time. So he was always visiting various Orthodox Christian people, including my family um, hosted him a long time ago, uh, you know, prior to my birth as well. So he even stayed at our place for quite, you know, it was quite a blessing that the Iveron icon stayed at my grandparents' house back in the day. But very blessed man. And he was martyred on the eve of Halloween in Athens. Uh, he was tortured. There was cigarette burns, you know, fingers broken um, and killed, naturally killed in Athens. The investigation never came to, never closed exactly who killed him. Most likely Satanists, the same ones who martyred the new martyrs of Optina, who, again, we speak about in the Aether episode. But Brother Jose is a new martyr. He is someone who was killed, essentially a, a passion bearer who was killed for his faith, for being an Orthodox Christian, a caretaker of the icon. The icon has mysteriously disappeared. Some people say perhaps he's hidden it. Maybe he left it on Mount Athos, perhaps during his visits to Greece, or maybe it simply disappeared as icons do sometimes mysteriously. In church history, we read about icons and relics of saints which simply miracul miraculously vanish. And then perhaps tens of years or hundreds of years later, it'll reappear one day. But the icon is, uh, is gone. Brother Joseph is buried at Jordanville in New York State, and I think it was quite quite a blessing seeing all those people visit his gravesite and visiting the Jordanville uh, Orthodox Monastery there to commemorate him. Essentially, his canonization and his um, sort of uh, him being brought up to the status of sainthood will be uh, will be I think probably will occur during our lifetimes. I would say maybe even within the next five to ten years, because most people are waiting for it. We haven't had somebody martyred uh, in such a you know, horrendous capacity in a, in a long time in the church. And I think we sh he should be celebrated for his life and for his death for Christ. So Brother Jose, uh, Brother Joseph, uh, you called him Iosif in Russian, definitely one of the one of the Orthodox Christian examples of our time. And, you know, dying in 1997, he really didn't live long ago. It was only 26 years. So many people still remember and have met him in the community, especially out in the West. I you opposed in 1997, much like our beloved father Methodius, who we talked about on our previous Ether mm -hmm. Hour. So, you know, the end of a generation. But, you know, speaking of, you know, Brother Jose and the Holy Trinity Monastery, it's such a beautiful monastery. I need to, I really want to make it out there. And a monastery, though, a Russian monastery in America that may even give Jordanville Holy Trinity a run for its money on, on beauty is St. Saba's Orthodox Monastery in Harper Woods, Michigan. And I'm saying this mostly because we're linking below. They have a fundraiser going for the civilians in Gaza. St. Saba's, this monastery is a direct brother monastery of the St. Saba's Jerusalem Patriarchate Monastery in the Holy Land itself, which you know, I'm sure is facing hard times in and of itself. But of course, St. Porfirio's Church, which itself I think had monks attached to it in some capacity, you know, very much troubled right now. The church hall destroyed. We saw nine baptisms this past week there, though, of children, which was was beautiful to see. But in general, the Christians there are being being pushed out just as much as the Muslims are, if not more, because there's so much less of them. And of course, this church, we're going to have it linked below the, the GoFundMe and everything. With this, It's truly a beautiful monastery. They have this beautiful kind of Russian-style garden. It's very, very Russian. Like, it's almost as Russian as, like, the Ephraimite St. Anthony's monasteries are Greek. You know, it's very... You know, they really use kind of the kind of Great Lakes, Michigan, you know, flora and fauna to really build this beautiful garden. And Metropolitan Nicholas is actually the abbot. It's a monastery directly under the first hierarch of Rokor. And they go on all sorts of visits over to the Holy Land, and the abbots of the Holy Land monasteries have come and visited them. And they actually have relics of St. Sabas himself. So it's, it's truly a great ancient connection we have to the Holy Land over there. So... Be sure to support the Christians there and click below and donate. It'll really mean a lot. And I know that, 
you know, even before this crisis happened, these were underfunded Christian communities that were struggling to, you know, stay afloat in some capacities and resist the onslaughts of the of the Zionist entities' legal lawfare to try to overtake them, let alone engage in, you know, evangelistic activity there, which is also so restricted. So be sure to support. It would really mean a lot. And, you know, we've talked about some bummers, but Dimitri, maybe give us one last, you know, piece of good news before we give the plugs here, and then we'll let everybody go. You know, the good news relates to, of course, the uh, the, the reigning religion in, in the Holy Land, frankly, and it isn't Christianity, and it, it isn't even Islam. It's Molochian, Baalic, you know, Satanism, frankly, and which is what we're seeing right now of the mass sacrifice of children. And where does the good news relate to this? Well, in fact, that I think countries are awakening to the fact that slaying and murdering children is bad. Sacrificing them to demons is not the way to go, which finally we're reaching those conclusions. And similar to how Roe v. Wade was overturned in the US, in Russia, on the entire Crimean Peninsula, notice coincidentally, as Metropolitan Tikhon is enthroned in Crimea and Simferopol, Father Fyodor Lukyanov actually announces that they've had a roundtable discussion. The main politicians of the Crimean Peninsula, uh, main medical professionals, like there was uh, several chief doctors here and even Orthodox priests, Orthodox bishops, and they announced that all the private medical centers, so this is private medical centers over all the entire Crimean Peninsula will be banning abortion starting tomorrow, which I think it already has taken place. So they're wrapping up all abortion on the peninsula. And this is uh, this is a quite a blessing, I think. And the, the, interestingly enough, at this roundtable, they spoke about other Russian regions, which are also engaging in these practices. So they spoke about Yuzhevsk, Stavropol, Mardovia, Tambov, Kaliningrad, which is uh, Königsberg, right? You know, all the old Prussian capital. You know, all of these areas, Kemerova, as well as even Kadyrov's Chechnya, funny enough, Kadyrov actually banned abortion first <laughs> in all the Russian states, which is why I'm following again, uh, after Orthodox missionary Ignatius Lapkin, who runs a pretty big YouTube channel, 60,000, I think, subscribers, but he said that the only reason Kadyrov is still in power is because Kadyrov banned abortion, so God gave him this uh, clemency. <laughs> Funny enough, which I think is true. He said, look, he's like, women in Chechnya, they dress very modestly. The men behave fairly decently in Chechnya. You know, they don't go around robbing stores and things. His crime is pretty low. And also he says abortion is banned, so God is merciful to Chechnya, despite the fact that they're Muslim. And I think that there's probably some truth to that. So that's Ignatius Lapkin's opinion, a famous missionary from Russia and a big YouTuber these days. He's about 90 years old. But nevertheless, Father Fyodor announced an amazing thing. He says, look, Crimea has banned abortion. This is a huge success. I think it's a good, again, it's a domino effect, right? It's an effective influence. We speak about orthodox influence around the world with our recent interview with Dissident Mama, which you can probably uh, watch. We'll be advertising that on our Twitter and Telegram. So keeping a lookout uh, for that. But that's great news. And naturally, hopefully that'll spread all over Russia and in fact, uh, be spread to other orthodox countries as well. Because again, stopping child child murder, child sacrifice, I think is should be at the forefront of collective ethical and Christian morality around the world. We shouldn't be like the people in Israel right now who are slaying children en masse. Again, we need to look inwards firstly. We can't just say, wow, they're slaying all those children. How dare they, these Palestinians? Meanwhile, there are there's literally clinics down the road which do the same thing, but at home. So I think that's very important. And, you know, the Russians are blessed for actually moving, you know, moving towards these steps. I think it's a, it's a huge blessing for the local communities and they're going to benefit long-term from this. 100%. And I think it's good that more and more people are assessing their immediate surroundings. I mean, look, you're in Crimea, you're getting hugely expensive, powerful missiles launched at you. It's like, look, I think we should stop, you know, killing babies. We should, that way, that might help protect us from this, you know, evil onslaught that, you know, God is permitting to, to, you know, to fly over our heads. So I think it's the right decision. And it shows, I think, to the to the nature of Metropolitan Tikhon that he's he's doing the right thing and he understands 
the civilizational nature of all of these things metaphysically and 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 on all in in every regard. But with all of that, you know, thank you very much for listening, everybody. You know, we're going to keep covering the ongoing situation in Gaza, of course, despite the you know toning down and the cooling down that might happen in the midst of the less bellicose speech. We're still going to be watching very closely because anything could change. The Harrier groups are actually both now in position, so the possibility of an escalation there is actually higher. It takes a long time for these Harrier groups to move, so the Eisenhower is now there next to the Ford, so we're going to be watching it closely. We're going to be watching to see what happens. Of course, we know Putin is sending humanitarian aid to Gaza, and now it seems that the ethnic cleansing is going to go on. We're going to see if these people truly, really do get pushed in mass out of southern Gaza. And of course, we're going to be watching how the other fronts in the Third World War respond to the growing conflict there at the center of the universe around Jerusalem. But with all of that, be sure to subscribe to worldwarnow.substack.com. It's where you can find everything. Check out our recent Ether Hours. The next Ether Hour will be a Q&A. Don't ask any more questions, though. We're probably going to lock the thread. We have too many. But let us know. We should do more of those in the future. But our Q&A, subscribers-only Ether Hour Q&A is coming up. We're going to answer some fantastic questions. People have asked some great stuff. So thank you so much for supporting. You get access to all the Ether Hours on the Substack. Again, it really helps us out. Every World War Now will always be free our weekly analysis. But again, the analysis is easier. We have more time and freedom to do the analysis if you support us on the Substack. So do that if you can. Uh, World War Now on YouTube. Subscribe, like the videos. Liking the videos helps them appear to more people. So do that if you can. Subscribe on Rumble. Uh, the Rumble uploads seem to be happening pretty consistently. So be sure to subscribe there. We're never going to get banned on Rumble, hopefully. So that's much like Substack, a good backup that we're always going to have. But World War Now underscore on Twitter. Our Twitter has really popped off. You know, we're getting close to 12,000 followers now, so be sure to follow us over there. We're, we're getting great numbers. World War Now Telly, our telegram also popping off. Got some great analysis there. That's where you would have caught my Nasrallah speech analysis first, so be sure to follow us over there. We're about to hit 2,000 subscribers on Telegram. But yeah, I'm on Twitter at GnomeRad. Dimitri's on Twitter at OCanonist. Again, worldwarnow.substack.com. The support means a lot. Leave a comment on Substack and on YouTube. Substack, though, will definitely respond. Look at it. YouTube, maybe we will, maybe we won't, you know. So leave comments regardless. It really helps us out. And Dimitri, I'll let you leave us with the last words. Yeah, of course. Thank you for your support, guys. It's really come a long way. I think we've received excellent feedback, and we have some really great collaborations like Dissident Mama, I think, is the one that's coming up this week. But there's definitely some ins incredible interviews lined up for you guys. So... Um, look, it's just about providing content and, you know, we do it in the best way possible verbally, of course, naturally. We'll have some written articles released prior to the end of the year. Again, not that we've been slacking over, just we've been busy with these major projects we'll be working on. There's there's some really exciting news towards the end of November. No spoilers, but I think we'll be hearing about that very soon. Again, just covering the news, we're not trying to be pessimistic here. I think Dissident Mama said it very correctly that, look, it's, it's just about staying positive, staying hopeful. And I think ending on a hopeful note that, you know, like all Christians around the world, there is still hope for Christianity. There will be another flourishing in the future as the prophecies have stated. So definitely stay positive, guys. Attend attend church liturgy, pray, and definitely pray for the people in uh, in Palestine at the moment. Pray for the Christians and all the entire population of those being persecuted and harassed, genocided by the Israeli regime. I think these, uh, you know, just like in Ukraine, I think we're seeing the evil forces of the world really, uh, really become active because yeah, at this point, it's it seems like their time is running out. It seems like they've, they've been given all these years to have a free reign around the around the world, and that's finally ending, hopefully, or at least it's coming to a certain halt, being put on pause. So let's pray for, pray for all the people persecuted around the world, and God bless, guys, for listening and your support. Thank you so much, guys.